Hey guys, this is Richard jumping in again to let you know that you are listening to part two of my conversation with Dr. Ritesh Mehta. You can find part one on the podcast feed if you haven't listened to it yet. Now, please enjoy. Now, um, in, in, in an adaptation, it's obvious that there are going to be changes, and we have talked about some of these changes. Um, it's literally impossible to put everything into an adaptation. Uh, and, and I think that it would be uh, wrong not to point them out. And I also understand that there are a lot. So I'm not going to go through each and every change that they made in the movies. Uh, but I do want to point out several ones. And I'll start with, with the storyline, which I think is the most obvious. It's the emphasis on the stakes. And for me, this is, th this is from the beginning. Uh, first of all, the movie begins with a prologue. And I think this is genius because... If we were to begin the same way that the book begins, everyone would be asleep. Because I, I was asleep at the end of the long expected party. <laughs> because yes, the book the book starts like a history book. It starts telling you all the history from the hobbits and telling you all this information, which is great, but when you translate that into into film you you can't just start with that you have to tell us what the stakes are okay now the book yes it's concerned with the history and and the journey and and how that plays out the film has this urgency that is completely missing from book 1 um it it, it gives you the ring at the front and center and this is what we're fighting for this is what's uh, putting us in peril. This is what we have to destroy. Plain and simple. From the beginning, those first three, five minutes of prologue are amazing because they not only tell us that the ring is bad, they tell us a brief history of how that ring came to be, how it has corrupted the world that we're going to be uh, thrown into, and what we what we can expect that the most unlikeliest of creatures a hobbit now is in possession of this all-powerful ring what is going to happen next um yeah and i and think also just a sense of the passage of time like yeah. the passage of time uh because that's for someone like for me like when i didn't know anything about the books when i was watching the film i could tell in those in that condensed prologue like we kind of tend to now like we become wary of exposition, but that ex that exposition is sorely needed. Like the new Doom movies, people didn't, some people did not like the, the exposition. But I mean, I personally generally tend to like exposition, but this is not just exposition, this kind of masterful summary. And it's like throwing the gauntlet, like as you said, like throwing the gauntlet, like the stakes begin with with Kate Blanchett's reading of Galadriel's words. And it's, I think it's just like, it's a screenwriter's challenge to kind of come up with that kind of, succinct summary of yeah. what's happening yeah yeah uh, another thing that i wanted to point out is uh andrew's journey now andrew is uh aragorn's sword and I, I don't know if you remember but in in the fellowship of the ring he has narsil 
He has the broken sword. He carries it throughout the entire beginning right up until they reach Rivendell. And they reforge it into Anduril. And he has Anduril for the rest of the books. And in the movie, um, they they hold that right up until before he summons the army of the dead. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a choice. I I understand why they they might have done it like that in the movie. But personally, uh, and, and this goes to something that I'll talk about later, which is character. It 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 kind of. Uh, messes with with the character of Aragorn, who in the movie is just like a reluctant hero. He he he's like the one who doesn't want to take on the mantle of being the one, um, which is v- completely different from the way that he is in the book. Um, but I understand w- why they might have wanted to do it because, like I said, um. In film narrative, you you want you want that drama, you want that problem. What, so what's the problem with this character? He's supposed to be the leader, but he doesn't really want to. Um, I have issues with that, but I I understand why why they might have thought that they needed what, to do it. What's your main issue with that? Well, Aragorn from the beginning, he knows his place. He knows that he is supposed to be the king. He was raised. To be the king. As a matter of fact, Elrond has told him that if he takes the crown, if he beats Sauron, and he is able to 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 lead uh, Gondor uh, successfully, he will be able to marry Arwen. Plain and simple. That's it. That's that's his that's his motivation to be the king. None of this. Oh well, she's going, so I'll just I'll just let her I'll just let her go. None of that. There's there's none of that. There's none of that. Why? Because his love for her is stronger than that. And him being this reluctant hero kind of makes him a little bit weaker. Uh, Character-wise, uh he he is a leader from the beginning. So when he takes on the fellowship after leaving Rivendell, when you're reading that novel, you say, yes, this guy, he he is the leader. He is the one who was supposed to, to lead us at the end. That's why he's helping Frodo in this journey. Okay? Right. Um, and in the movie, it's just, it's very vague. He he has this despair. He um, He's even ashamed of his bloodline. Yeah, he comes across as a... Even in the Council of Elrond, like Boromir, in terms of Boromir's physicality and like, I guess Viggo Mortensen has like a more soft voice. So like Aragon doesn't seem to have much of a say. And I think the only time, like the one time I began to kind of, my, my, my opinion of Aragon shifted was when he was able to resist Frodo offering him the ring and he kind of closed Frodo's palms. And that's when like, okay, there's something special I, about that culture. I love that scene. Yeah. Okay. So, so Aragorn, Throughout throughout the two towers is is also kind of in this back and forth whether I should lead or not. But that particular moment at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring in the movie um, is 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 very telling of of his character mm-hmm. um, because he's not he's not 
just resisting the ring. He he knows his place. He knows my place is to save you. So if saving you means that I have to stay back and and let you go and do your journey and and maybe go on my way and make the others think that I'm going this way and you're with me, then that's what I'm going to do. So he he makes that choice and that's fantastic. And you see you see him make that choice. When yeah. he closes Frodo's hand, he, he him making that choice is a very very strong character moment for him. Yeah. I, I, and I really like it. I really like it. Agreed. All right. So uh, character-wise, um, I, I also want to talk about Frodo, who in the book, he is a, a willing participant in this entire thing. He's, he's, he plans his, his move from, from the Shire to wherever he needs to go to safeguard the ring. And here's the thing. There is a span of 17 years from yes. when Gandalf oh leaves him with the ring to when he decides to go on the quest. Frodo is like, what, 50 by the time that he, that he Yeah, he was he goes? 23 on Bilbo's birthday, Bilbo's 111th birthday, and then he was 50 when he left. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Frodo, Sam calls him. Yeah. So, so, he's, it, so it's, it's that long time that he takes in order to plan this out and make sure that everything is set so that he can move out. And then he has some conspirators, uh, Pippin and Mary and Sam already knew that he had the ring and what it did because they were eavesdropping. And so it's, it's a different dynamic that goes on in that beginning of the fellowship. Uh, so Frodo is, he has more um, ownership of this quest in the movie, he he is portrayed as kind of a reluctant savior. Uh, yes, he says, I'll do it. But it's when he sees that there's no other way out of it. Yeah. Um, there's like the moment in the Council of Elrond when everyone's fighting and he kind of gets up and says, okay, I'll do it, but I don't know how. And then we see Gandalf mm. just like Gandalf saying, okay, you've made your choice and I'll help you. But yeah, you're right. Like he was so he was so reluctant. And Elijah's Elijah Wood as a casting choice. Like, I mean, he really sells that reluctance so well yeah. with his like big blue yeah. eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's his eyes, man. It's those big blue baby eyes. Real bad. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Um yeah. uh, I already mentioned Aragorn's character change. Um and the other big one is Faramir. I don't know if you remember, but yeah. Faramir in the two towers is a really awesome character even even in the return of the king he is what uh what boromir should have been um and in in the movies they just turn him into this quote unquote villain right where he yeah. wants to that, take the that ring doesn't work to... very well in the story of the in the two towers no yeah, 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 and they don't dig into it sufficiently, and he they change, you know, he changes his mind, uh, and he lets Gollum's Smeagol go, and it doesn't have much impact. It's just a weird point in that story, because going into Asgiliath uh, for 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 him to just say, "All right, no, no, go back," 
It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just weird. And then the way that they try to make him a villain is it just didn't didn't quite work for me. It in the book he's awesome. And then the other thing is the stakes that go into places like Helm's Deep and and um, the Shire uh, in Helm's Deep. Uh, I think that in the movie they kind of water it down by bringing in an army of elves. Which is why I I don't know I, I I think I think that they 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 took um the uh the people from Rohan and they just said you're just not enough uh we need we we need to bring the 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 cool people from Lothlorien so come on elves and help us out no no that it. I don't know. It just oh, it waters nice. down. So this was not there in the books. No, the army of the elves. No, 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 oh, no, no. Okay. And even even if you if you read on the history, um, that that supposed army of elves that comes in, this is the only army that Lothlorien has, and it has sent it to Helm's Deep. So, first of all, they don't have anybody to protect them at the moment, and then if anybody dies from there, they're not coming back. So whatever army comes back to Lothlorien is going to be a reduced army. R.I.P. Haldir. <laughs> Haldir, yeah. And, and that's, you know, they, they did it. Uh, they tried like, to give Orlando Bloom a moment to act, and he comes up short again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Um, but but my, to my point, here's here, my, my biggest issue with that choice is that the army that the people of Rohan have aren't enough in the book, and yet, and yet, they are able to hold off the Urukai. Okay, which makes for a stronger show of character, of resistance, of strategy. Uh, that then uh, uh, people come and save them with Gandalf. That's fine. In the book, it's not that big of a chunk of the Rohirrim that comes in. I, I don't even think I don't even think that um, Eomer is the one that comes. I think Eomer is fighting at Helm's Deep. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, I don't anyway, think that's anyway. very well actually. Because because Eomer is not banned. He 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 was never banned from from uh from Rohan. So a anyway, anyway. Bringing in the elves at Helm's Deep for me was a big mistake. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other, the other thing that changed was the scouring of the Shire oh, at the major. end of the oh Return of the King, which is weird because for for us who have read the book, it's it's one of those many endings. People complain that the Return of the King, the movie, has many endings. Yes. Well, guess what? The Return of the King book has a lot more endings than the movie. So, and this is one of them. This is one of them. The thing, the thing about about the way the movie portrays it is that the Shire wasn't even touched by the things that were happening in Middle Earth, which is incongruous to everything else that we've come to know. And taking out this part of the story um, makes for a happy ending. I understand that. Even, even if our characters are kind of changed, which we see when they go into, into the bar and they're having a drink together. And 
they have this knowing look amongst each other. They like, yeah, we've gone through this thing, and now is uh, it's Sam's turn to to kind of get the girl, um, because he's the hero, right? Uh, <laughs> but in the book, they cut. Co- they come back to a shire that has been completely destroyed by uh, industry. Um, Saruman is at 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 the lead of all of this. He's the Shark mastermind queen. behind everything. Um and Wormtongue is there as well, and it shows how these four hobbits that come back have changed because they become the leaders of uh, of this town, and they are the ones who inspire the revolt, and they are the ones who say this is this is we're gonna take the Shire back. Um, now I understand why they remove this. Uh, the the movie already had a bunch of endings and and the story's done by this point the story's done so if 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 we come back to the scouring uh, the scourging of the shire how how are we gonna how are we gonna end this again because the main conflict is done so I un- I understand why they got rid of it it doesn't mean that I didn't miss it because thematically thematically it's a big point in in the hobbits lives. Um, but anyway, anyway, uh, what, what do you think about this? I wasn't like one way or the other for me, like, I think the books also kind of indicate that like once Sauron's dominion is over, like, I don't know what, how much influence Saruman would wield. So I honestly didn't care too much for, I mean, I, I didn't want the Shire to be this untouched place and the Shire has scars on it as well and we know even in the books the books talk about like there were enemies before Frodo left the Shire people were kind of there were enemies kind of surrounding it and then the rangers were guarding the Shire so we know that the Shire was in danger but to me if 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 Sauron and Barad-dur have fallen and even in the book there's this passage that suggests cinematically what happens when the tower falls I don't know what 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 power would left be left to Saruman at the end and the Shire? So I don't know where, even if like Saruman had managed to win that last battle, would that have really changed anything? I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, I, I even think that Saruman was stripped of his powers. So okay. this was merely just a like a revenge kind of flex that he did. Yeah. Going back to the Shire. Um all right. But so again, I understand why it's it's not yeah. in the film. I'm not saying that it should be in the film. Um, I just it's it's curious to me that with everything that was going on in Middle Earth, that the Shire was just spared. That's it. That's 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 my beef. Okay, so let's go into this new section uh, where I wanna I wanna talk about our three favorite changes from all three films. So what we're gonna do is three favorite changes. In the uh, just one of each from Fellowship, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King, and our least three favorite changes from each film. So you go first. Favorite changes. Okay, my favorite my favorite change in the Fellowship. Should I, should I just list the three from each each movie? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so my my favorite change from Fellowship is uh, Arwen replacing Glorfindel in the in, in the chase with the Nazgul from Weathertop to. Rivendell. Okay. My favorite change in the two towers is the attack of the wargs. Uh, cinematically, I thought this is like fantastic. 
And my favorite change in um, Return of the King, I did think that the opening scene with Smeagol and Diego putting it there, um, somehow that just felt like after the heaviness of, bat- at the, of, of the Battle of Helm's Deep at the end of the season of the second film, to kind of start off with that little history and to kind of remind us what the stakes are and to remind us of the origin story of Smeagol um, was great. All right. Uh, so those are my three favorite things from the movies. Uh, you, want, you want me to stop here, or should yeah, I? Yeah, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll do three favorite changes that I like okay. from the movies. So for the Fellowship of the Ring, I like the pacing and the emphasis on the peril of the ring. I think that's my favorite change in that uh, in that adaptation because, like I said before, the the book is just a really long stretch before the thing kind of starts um, in the two towers, the entire narrative structure. I love the way that they were able to start that movie by going back, which is fantastic. Um, in, 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 in the books, Boromir doesn't, doesn't die until the beginning of, of the two towers. So in, in that first mm-hmm. chapter, the, the departure of Boromir, that's when he dies. So uh, it, it, he, he's already dead in the movies. And then they begin, instead of going into whatever comes after that, they just go back in time and show us what happened when Gandalf fell. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that you, when you read it, that he explains this is what happened. He's just explaining it. He's he in the book. He explains it. He says, "This is what happens." And I said, "All right. Well, maybe we'll get some passage in the movie where he says, well, so I fought the Balrog, and and that's it. I fell and I mm-hmm. fought the.' But no, I never, ever expected to actually see that. To, to see Gandalf actually fighting the Balrog as he's falling from Casa Doom." It, mm-hmm. And it was just spectacular. It was. It's one of my favorite shots in the entire trilogy, when um, we we have oh this God, wide yes. shot, and he, they're both falling. You see the flame falling and Gandalf falling at the same time from far away. It's just so beautiful. It's it's. And they drop into the silent lake at the bottom. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I and and then the other thing is that. The Two Towers book is divided into two sections. So one section is the story of Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas and the other two hobbits, Merry and Pippin. And then the it stops. And then the fourth book is just all about Frodo, Sam, and Smeagol. Mm-hmm. So the way that they were able to, in the movie, adapt it so that these events are, 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 are concurrent and they're able to mesh everything together. I think that was spectacular. That's my favorite thing about about that movie. Um, and then for the Return of the King, um, Frodo fights Gollum at the end one last time, trying to get the ring back. Oh I think yes, I think that's my favorite thing. Uh, I think Gollum just slips, right? Like, yeah, he's he's dancing. He's, he's he's just jumping up and down, <laughs> and then he slips and he falls. And 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 I totally get it. That's very anticlimactic. So Frodo, Frodo, in the movie, he's missing a finger, and yet the allure of the ring is so strong that he musters strength from nowhere and fights Gollum at the end. 
And people say, ah, Frodo shouldn't have thrown him off the cliff. I don't think he throws him off the cliff. They're they're literally fighting as they fall. Um, yep. But so, two people completely gone crazy yeah. and one survives. Yeah. All right. So now let's go into our three least favorite things. Changes from the from, from the movie. Uh, fellowship, I think you may have a similar one you may cross on this, but like I wanted Tom Bombadil <laughs> uh, in the in the. I know it would have interrupted the narrative, but they were taking so many chances. You, could, I wish they had figured out one little way to get Tom Bombadil, and because he was such a unique character. And hello, this was happening in '99, so maybe you could have cast Roberto Benigni <laughs> <laughs> from Life Is Beautiful, and like somehow given him this crazy wig, and like he would have brought Bombadil to life. Is it Bombadil or Bombadil? I don't know. It's but. Tom Bombadil. Bombadil. Tom. I was missing Bombadil from the movie. Uh, Two Towers. You know, like I did like the beginning uh, when Gandalf was fighting the Battle Rock, but somehow when Gandalf meets the hobbits, uh, Merry and Pippin in, the, uh, in, in Fangorn, and his transformation from the Great to the White Wizard, I, I didn't like when I was watching it, having not read the books, it, it's kind of fine. I find it a little jarring for whatever reason. I don't fully understand enough about um, wizards to know what what changes or what conditions allow them to kind of move up the order. Well, uh, so I don't really care for Gandalf coming in. Like, and even the shot with Mary and Pippin looking up at that figure in white. Looks nice, but I don't know. I'm not too crazy about that. Hmm. I, I, I don't. I, I don't think it explains further why. Um, and then in Return of the King, I just one of the issues I have with Tolkien in general is like the like the female characters is like mostly kind of really poorly written. And Arvan is like they give her more dimension in the movies, I think. But Eowyn, um, I think, is portrayed as too damsel-like and too much too easily in love with Aragon. And I was kind of well, doing my research uh, yesterday, like there's a line in the book, apparently, I don't remember reading it now, but like where she kind of gives it off to Aragon for being like a chauvinist and mm-hmm. as for saying that you expect a woman's place to be at the home. And I'm like, why didn't you give, give the character more dimension? Yep. Uh, Miranda Otto could have played her that way, but mm-hmm. the script wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, so my least favorite changes... In the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, my my least favorite change was that everybody was just sad. Um, there's despair writ large on many of the characters. You have no hope. Yeah, Elrond is 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 saying, uh, I, "I I don't know if I love Viggo Weaving." <laughs> I I like him. I like him. He he. He 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 does have matrixy vibes, but but I like him. Uh, but the, the the thing is, he's he's saying like Aragorn. He 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 turned away from 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 his uh, from his destiny a long time ago, and we can't we can't just rely on men. So he has he has this. I don't know. He's 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 completely lost hope. And Aragorn is the same way, and even Gandalf in the beginning, he's he's I don't know he's it doesn't look like Gandalf had a plan. 
that's that's my I think that's my biggest issue mm-hmm. that Gandalf from the Hobbit he has a plan. I mean, the reason why he took the elves to Erebor was to actually bring the people of Dale back and then bring the kingdom of the dwarves back into Erebor so that there would be a stronghold there. And if Sauron tried to enter through that way, he couldn't. Okay, so Gandalf was already doing this. He was he was fighting the necromancer while the Hobbit was going. So uh, the fact that he doesn't suspect that that's the ring of power in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring is I, I don't I don't I don't get it. He's just clueless, completely clueless and full of despair. And that's something that I just I can't square it. I can't square it because he is very calculating in all of the novels. So anyway, that's that's my biggest uh, the biggest thing that I don't like from the fellowship. And then for the two towers, I already talked about this, which is turning Faramir into Boromir 2.0, which Mm -hmm. I didn't like. And the other thing is I'm kind of cheating here because I'm I'm doing two Uh, that uh, the, the ants are they're dumb and I, I I don't mean that they look dumb I, I I mean that they are dumb how can they not know that Saruman is felling all these trees I don't get it why why don't they want to go to war because in the movie they they make the end and, and they make the end moot and they decide not to go to war um in in the books they they obviously had to go to war because they are aware of all that's going on. So that's another change that I do not understand. It's also strange because like trees are supposed to have, I mean, I know ants are not exactly trees, but that's supposed to be amazing. Like the latest research on the science of trees is the, the communication amongst trees, the root systems is like fantastic. And I'm sure that Tolkien, given how clued he was to nature in general, he knew that trees are special and ants are even more special. Yeah. So the fact that they didn't communicate to each other for years, even in their own special way, is a little strange. Anyway, all right, all right. So, um, and then for the return of the king, like you said, just messing up Eowyn. Um, I think I think her reveal before she and Mary defeat the witch king is terrible. Uh, because in the book, she is disguised, but you don't know. You don't know that it's her. It's not mm-hmm. until she takes off her helmet that you say, oh, wait, right, that's Elwyn. This whole time we've been following this other soldier, but it's been Elwyn all the time. It's great. It's it's fantastic. But in the movie, you know it's her, and then she takes off the thing, and then you kind of see Mary stab the Witch King, but you don't really know what happens. It, because if it were not for Mary, she wouldn't been she wouldn't have been able to to stab the witch king. It's thanks to Mary that she's able to kind of get the the killing blow. Um, so that's that's my biggest gripe with that movie. But it's great. I love it. It is satisfying at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. All right. So why do you think these movies have stood the st- the test of time? Wow. Um, I think it's just like they just do storytelling really well and they understand the Holy Grail and 
they commit to their ideas of like even like you know the, the stuff that we don't like about the, like the reluctant savior mm-hmm. for both Frodo and for Aragon. Um, they take them to all the arcs really well, and they're very well planned out, and they distribute them pretty well. And the editing, especially if you look at the fellowship, that there's so many changes. If you look at the kind of the, the geographies they go through. Um, and the kind of craftsmanship and the ideas that they put in there, they didn't try to, it's it's like they were playing within a, an almanac of visual adaptation that wasn't yet created, but they kind of suggested this is the playbook and we didn't go outside of it. We kind of created the playbook for you, for future generations, for Game of Thrones, for example. Mm-hmm. And they knew within what they were creating, they didn't go outside, they didn't kind of, they played within the rules that they were creating, I think. So I think it's a little bit of abstract way of saying that like, they were visionaries, but they stayed within the vision that they were creating. They didn't fiddle around with that vision. Um, And also just like, I mean, given the times that we're living in today, like um, we kind of need these tales even more. Um, And the tale like, even, even in terms of like, we're living in such a polarized political culture right now. And to see that, um, you know, species and races of such different uh, histories kind of, mm-hmm. kind of kind of band together. Um, these are like fables and stories that are important for our times and they, that people can relate to throughout. And um, yeah, I mean, there's probably many more reasons, but those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I would, I would add that it's just, it's a, timeless tale it's plain and simple it's 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 fantasy but it's something that um can resonate with every generation i think all right so we we've kind of talked about the movies per se how about if we get into the nitty-gritty and talk a little bit about the geography of middle earth um, so what what is it that that kind of uh, draws you to to these maps? I think even before I discovered Tolkien, I loved when I was a kid, I would draw my own imaginary worlds through extensive maps. And I actually have lost all of them because I was doing them behind closed doors when my parents thought I was studying. (laughs) (laughs) And I was actually like drawing these elaborate maps of imaginary lands made by something called the Ecuador winds. And like, you know, so I had like detailed cities drawn out and lands drawn out. And they were like these alternative places to live and they were utopias of sorts and I think utopias are well and good but to actually fulfill them you need maps you need history you need lore you need um, you need the differences amongst mountains rivers uh, plains you need all of that to kind of put, to put to kind of put your land through and it's, as, I've also always just been very much in love with mountains as a kid um so when i see the rendering that like the i don't know what kind of um history of cartography and visual cartography that tolkien was rendering from but like when i open the the huge lord of the rings books i'm just drawn to the maps at the very end Mm -hmm. i don't know it's it's hard to explain i just love looking at 
a person's imagination and the way they've drawn out a map and how not just like like the big map, but also like the, the he has maps of all the various regions. And Karen, the Atlas of Middle Earth by Karen Bryn Fornstad, who was at University of Wisconsin, is fantastic. I would recommend it to all of you to buy it because it's the in her charcoal gray kind of brown renderings, she kind of really does an interpretation, which people have faulted with only because people are amazing fans and they like to find the nitty-gritty changes and everything. But she really gives us a history of from the first age, second age, third age, how Middle Earth changed. She gives us a sense of the Ainur and all and, and the Valar and like how how the Undying Lands look like. It's just really, really extensive and fantastic. And I just appreciate the largeness of vision. Um, but you know, and, and the thing but with uh, with Tolkien is that for him space and time are really well integrated throughout the maps. Like you can't talk about the regions without talking about the age and the time and um, you know, like the timelines and the passages of what he calls, like what he calls the hosts, like the host of the Valinor entering the end and fiddling with, like in finally interfering with, um, because if the Valinor had not interfered at the end of the first age, then, you know, Melkor would have won um, and taken over. So I don't know, like maps allow you to understand how people and characters, you know, achieve their goals. And like, I think, and, and, and the timeline it takes to achieve them. For me, space and time are very integrated. And I like the sounds and names of the, the names of these places, like Belarion and Eriador and Rune and Harad and Bay of Belfalas. They just, they just utter these names and they just conjure these images in my head that I can stay with. I'd rather deal with that than social media, you know? Um, <laughs> I like the sound of the undi undying lands and the sundering seas. Like, I mean, undying and sundering. I mean, what poetry is that? It's like, you know, it's, it's really, really epic. It's full of wanderlust. As all of these names, like, it's just like something, something that just awakens inside me. I can think with these names somehow. I can create my own fan fiction with these names. It's ultimately Tolkien's gift to us all and Peter Jackson is they make these worlds so expansive that we can create our own stories. We can fill them in with journeys and character arcs and places and uh, adventures that we would want to see. And I think the Tolkien fan fiction that has come out since the publication of the books is really unbelievable. Um, and I want to know what Smog saw when he was like, flying around the lonely mountain like i want to see what these characters are seeing and allowing like having extensive maps allows us to imagine what strider was looking at when he was traveling all the way from like the northwestern part from the from the from the gray mountains all the way i mean apparently aragon went even further than where where gandalf had been yeah he went to rune he went yeah. to harad so it's like you know, the, the book that Bilbo writes is called There and Back Again, and maps really allow us to go there and back again. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what I like about maps, and I've mentioned this to you before, is the way that you can trace the story. You can trace the story uh, as, as you read it, and then just open the map and see, okay, so I was I was here reading this part, and then they traveled here. And the, the thing is, you are not only looking at what you read, but you also, you're transported into this entire journey. And it, it 
when, when you actually look at okay so they 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 took this journey and went here and then you've already read something from the silmarillion and they were in an area close to it you kind of say wow these two people were in the same place at different eras of this world doing a different quest that eventually led to to this particular thing and that is amazing that is amazing and then the other thing is the way that tolkien um created these obstacles for for the fellowship uh, like for example uh, when 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 they're actually going through the quest to get the ring done uh, uh th thrown into mount doom they they have to figure out what's the best way to go so they try going through here trying to go through there one of them is going through karatras and they can't they can't travel through karatras so they have to kind of go back and it's just it's there it's karatras it's it's full of snow there's there's a storm going on um in the book they don't specify who is portraying the snow or, or the, the storm um but it's just an obstacle that's there it's part of the geography um and it's something that our characters have to get through and eventually they decide all right this isn't the best way to do it so let's go through another area and this other area is a mountain range that is not just a mountain range it's a mine and in that mine we have a bunch of history we have we have dwarves who have been living there for a long time. They have mined it so much that they found this Balrog, which is an evil entity from the time of Melkor back in the first age. So it's 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 amazing how how the geography kind of dictates the story as well. Um, and we talked about the 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 dead marshes that's 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 another location that um figures in the end of the second age um when they actually get rid of sauron and 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 this is this goes back to this being an epic i mean this is such a long story it's such a long journey it's such a vast world with such vast history that these characters are bound to come across these points along the map that have also featured have so have, have also been featured in other stories and that's fantastic because like i've said many times before it makes this world feel alive it makes it f feel yeah. lived in um so yeah that's that's and why the I love these part is very important because unlike you know in the movies we see today even like the epics like I don't arguably many characters aren't aware of histories that you know that these lands have been to that they're parsing through right now. And that that's something that keeps making me very, very moved by the the way Tolkien uses map and stories because the characters often know or they come to know like like, like we, we can be very literal and say that someone I know 3,000 years ago has also traversed this very road and this is what their journey was and this is what my journey is and you know somehow sometimes they may inform each other sometimes they may not but there's, some, there's something poignant in knowing that history that oftentimes we don't know like I'm walking through the streets of LA and I don't know anything about my my neighborhood you know so mm -hmm. that's what I learned from Tolkien is to know the history of the land. All right so um I have a bunch of other stuff that I, I would love to, to get to regarding 
um, landscapes and the different ages and how they h how um, the landscape has changed throughout the ages but I don't think we're gonna have time for that so I just I just want to go and move on um, because there is something that you would like to talk about and that is um, Frodo's journey starting with the valor and ending with uh, with King Elessar. So, talk us through that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I said, like as, as you said, we're not masters of the lore, but mm -hmm. um, for me, like the most poignant moment moments of the relationship uh, of, of the movies uh, of the three of the trilogy movies yep. um, is the fellowship and the breaking of the fellowship. And everyone goes their separate ways because it becomes abundantly clear to Frodo that you know he has to kind of go his own way. Yep. And um, I think I think what he's carrying with him because the ring represents um, what like the histories and the powers that Sauron inherited from Morgoth, mm. and Morgoth represents the very beginning of the world, like the opening part of the. Um, like the Silmarillion opens so wonderfully and there's this immense sweep across about 20,000 years of the fate of Middle-earth and everyone that's inhabited Middle-earth is represented through this little journey in one year of the fellowship. And, you know, if you want to start off with like how Melkor came, I just want to read one paragraph, which is the opening paragraph of the Valaquenta from Silmarillion. Mm -hmm which says, in the beginning, Eru the one who in the Elvish tongue is named Iluvatar made the Ainur of his thought and they made a great music before him. In this music, the world was begun for Iluvatar made visible the song of the Ainur and they beheld it as a light in the darkness. And many among them became enamored of its beauty and of its history, which they saw beginning and unfolding as in a vision. Therefore, Iluvatar gave to their vision being and set it amid the void, and the secret fire was sent to burn at the heart of the world, and it was called Ea. And to think that what we witness in the movies, somehow, even if you're not fully conscious of it, is is referred to, and we kind of go back to this to the beginning of the world because in the movies we see the world crumble when Baradur falls. Mm. In the movies we see. The light of the Arendelle, uh, of Arendelle that, uh, Arendelle that, you know, she loves Lear. I think Frodo uses Galadriel's gift, right? Um, and that also is light in the darkness. And the, the idea of light and darkness placed throughout from the Silmarillion all the way until the end. And what ultimately gives the final lift to the, to all the stories of Middle Earth is the fellowship and the coming together of once again, even at the end of the first age, the elves and the dwarves, at, at the end of the second age, the elves and the dwarves came together to two races that normally never come together. Here, for a brief period of four months, we had we had like nine folks who kind of traversed through this old history of like the remnants of Middle-earth because Middle-earth changed so much across the ages. And then, then, then the, the mission was completed and it seems like the mission of Tolkien and the purpose of the world was completed in a way. And what it just makes me very sad. I feel like when you read the appendices, because the appendices are gems and 
um, in the tail of the years, uh, after after Frodo and Sam and everyone saved the world, when they go back to the Undying Lands, so they, the ring bearers are allowed to go back to the Undying Lands. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the connect. Like it starts from the Undying Lands and it ends back on the, in the Undying Lands. But what's left in Middle, uh, what's left in Middle Earth is of void of tremendous proportions because there's no more fellowship and we don't know who's who's left to tell these tales because even ultimately the ring bearers and Sam gets passage because Sam was the ring bearer as well uh, and King LSR passes. So, you know, in, in the, the, the very end of the, t- I mean, I kind of quote to the very beginning. Uh, the last quote that I want to say um, is the very end of the fellowship where in age 1541, this is like about a hundred years into the fourth age. In the in this year on March 1st came at last the passing of King Alessar, Aragon. It is it is said that the beds of Meriadoc and Peregrine, Mary and Pippin, were set beside the bed of the great king. Then, uh, then Legolas built a great ship in Ithilien and sailed down Anduin and over the sea, and with him it is said when Gimli the dwarf. And when the ship passed, an end was come in the middle of the Fellowship of the Ring. So for me, like, um, that's that's this immense arc that I feel privileged and honored to be a part of and witness to. And when I read this for the first time, um, when I was reading the books, I cried for like 45 minutes because (laughs) something ended and I just felt that like, the world was becoming darker, like the Iraq war was going on at the time. And I just felt that we, we're never going to have this. And um, that's just, that for me is like, what I still take with me as hope every day is like, um, you know, yes, we can find our utopias, but we have to work really hard for them. And we have to be very fight for these values that we believe in and keep, we care for that the fellowship in some ways uh, try to, in their one year that they had together, um, they tried to they tried to honor right and um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I kind of may have overspoken, but I think that's that's what leaves me feeling is a sense of completion and uh, possibility. As we move on and look to the future, there is something that is looming coming soon they uh they when i say they i mean amazon amazon is making a lord of the rings series and they have teased us with an image and when that image came out i texted it to you and we kind of had a back and forth because we were a little bit confused about what was going on um we know that it'll be during the Second Age and that the Numenorians will feature in it. So, are they going to be adapting the Akalabeth, which is the downfall of Numenor, or what? And then I, th- I think the most confusing thing about that image, which was beautiful, by the way, is the fact that we kind of see the trees. We see the trees of light, and they were gone a long time ago before the Second Age. 
so what does that what does that mean? What do you think it means? I think they're going to play with. I think in the twenty years um, since the movies came out, like storytelling across multiple media, TV has TVs become so sophisticated, right? Mm. Uh, and audiences have are able to. There's so many different kinds of shows out there that there's so much liberty taken with the way to tell stories that I think they're going to. And also, like people now really can kind of take dark material in a way that like people couldn't take in the 90s. There's so much darkness and stories of all kinds being told today. Yeah. And look at the times we live in and like, look at these terrible times that we live in. So I think that they're going to, with the trees, I think they're going to kind of juxtapose storylines. And my hope is that they really challenge us in terms of trying to kind of put together these various storylines from the first stage. I, I want them to kind of play around and dabble in the years of the trees in the first stage and the second age. And I really, really want them to do all of that without losing the integrity uh, that we've spoken about throughout this podcast episode to geography, character, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, to, to, to kind of geography, character, and story. So if they want to talk about the, uh, of the, of the, the beginning of the world and of like the, of the Valar, um, they should do it in a way that somehow does that justice, but also brings the story elements together. So mm-hmm. don't overplay your hand. I hope Amazon, like I know that you're Amazon, but um, you know, don't overplay your hand, but do challenge us is my hope. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, again, it's, it's an adaptation. So I am not expecting to have everything. Um, I, I think my favorite book is The Silmarillion. And um, it, it's just because it's it's mostly history. And I, I just, I eat that up. I love it. However, I, I do understand that it's a very complicated book. And very dense. So there is a lot of story uh, that is contained in that little book because it's it's even smaller than I think than than the hobbit. But the stories that are in there are so amazing that if we just get a glimpse of say the story of Feanor and the Silmarils and how they came to be um that that would bring so much joy to me. <laughs> Just, just, just getting a glimpse. Maybe, maybe do a prologue or or something, um, because we we know that the Silmarils got their light from the trees of light. So maybe they're there for a reason. Maybe, maybe they're just saying, "Hey, we're probably gonna go here," and that is amazing. That is amazing. And then the prospect of seeing Numenor in all its glory. Yes, that is going to be fantastic. Um, if we get if we get a glimpse of Anatar, which is um, Sauron's uh, hum, quote unquote human form, that would also be fantastic. Uh, and I I don't see why not because if they are telling the story of the Akalabeth, Anatar figures a lot in that story. So uh, seeing him corrupt the humans, uh, the Numenorians, that would be awesome. Th- that uh, it's it's one of my favorite stories in the entire Silmarillion book. Um, not my favorite. My favorite would be Turin Turambar's story, 
but I highly doubt that they're going to do that because um, that's uh, that's that's quite a complicated story and it f it. it features a bunch of stuff that I'm not sure if people can handle. Um but I'm I'm willing to be surprised. So if if they yeah, also include this is that Amazon that this they could have maybe even planned this as an anthology a little bit like you know have different seasons cover different yeah uh, chapters of different books and as you know we know that their production budget is like almost close to half a billion dollars if not more and they could have tried many things and I just don't want them to I just want want them to do justice and uh, I don't. I just hope that like everyone's given has given good notes on the scripts to each other, like at yeah. the development stage, because I don't. I just. I can't deal with. I can't deal with the watered down version. You can't touch Numenor. You can't touch the Undying Lands and Monve and all the Ainur and like. Just don't be cheesy, please, and please do justice <laughs> to the female characters, please. Oh yeah, I. I... That's one of the things that in these times that we are, um, I, I really hope that they are able to, to, to bring the female characters to the fore. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I want to see Vire and I want to see Yavanna and I want to see, like, I want to see all of them. But, like, you know, like, do it in a way that's, I don't know, that, that, that honors the material but also shows the genius you're bringing to the adaptation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Well, we, we know for sure that, that Galadriel is going to be there. Um because she she was a big part in the story before mm -hmm. anything else happened. Um, and her story is also very interesting before she reached uh, Lothlorien. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, as, uh, I, I like the image that they put out, but that's all we've seen, so I can't really say much about it. Uh, it's just hopes, hopes and hopes and hopes. We need we need the hopes. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> All right, uh, Doctor Meta. Anything else that you would like to add to our conversation? Oh my God, this has been such an enriching and wonderful conversation. You, you managed to thank you for giving me the stage to kind of really indulge. Yeah, of um, in all of these aspects that. Um, that I just really enjoy and I just love the fact that I could prepare for this for like a whole week <laughs> and like talk about it in these couple of hours and and you know, I just have more material now to chew on because like all these amazing passages that I had forgotten about like the passages of the if the audiences want to check out how Gimli describes Legolas the glittering caves on page 534 of the of the combined trilogy it's, it's something to read it's really really fantastic all right, and uh, you can find that digital book, uh, flows and reading, flows of reading, engaging with text. Right, that's available at the USC website. Right. Correct. Okay. Yep, that's on Scalar. All right, Doctor Meta, thank you so much for coming back. This was a real nerd out. I really appreciate your time. I know, uh, I know your time is is very constrained these days, and I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this. This was so fun. I, I I could go on for hours talking about this. Uh, so me too. No, but I want to thank you, Richard, as well, like, uh, because like this feels like we were in the house of healing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it, there you go. It felt it felt it felt very. It felt so good to put aside, to put aside my regular work and just to kind of go back to the person I was 20 years ago because I feel like we have, we've all changed a lot uh, just as Frodo and Sam changed in many ways. And I think, uh, yeah, thank you. 
Thank yeah. you for this platform. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and these these movies, um, they were important when they came out to me, uh, and they still are, and I I think they will be for the future. Um, I know I've kind of passed it down to my kids, and they also love these movies. So I I hope that um, that feeling of timelessness never fades away from these movies because I I I, I really yeah. do think that they will stand the test of time. All right, Dr. Meta, what's the best way that people can connect with you or, or see what you, you're doing online? I actually just started on Instagram two weeks ago. I only have one post. It's going to be cinema as haiku, and that is Metacritic. My handle is Metacritic, one word, M-E-H-T-A, critic. And on Twitter, it's the same, except there's an underscore between them. It's Meta under, underscore critic. So you'll see my very occasional musings and things I've watched and things that I'm contemplating. All right. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Media Review Pod. That's Media, R-E-V-U-E, pod. You can send us emails with questions, comments, and suggestions to MediaReviewPod at gmail.com. You can leave a voice message by calling 407-603-5847. Please don't forget to subscribe to our feed and rate and review with five stars. Again, thank you so much, Ritesh. And to all our listeners out there, if you find the ring of power, don't put it on. And of course, (laughs) don't forget to breathe. Till next time, have a good one. Bye-bye.